as I was pleased this morning to say that we're continuing in John, I am likewise pleased this evening to say that we're continuing in Exodus. I feel glad to be getting back into these series that we were in before COVID, and uh, it feels like we're returning to some semblance of normalcy. So we thank God that we are here, gathered in the building again, and that we are able to get back into these sermon series. So we are in Exodus chapter 6, verse 14, through to Exodus 7 and verse 7 this evening. Listen as I read Exodus 6, 14 and following. These are the heads of the fathers' houses, of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Kalu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jacob, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Azael. The, son, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Moshi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Ishar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Alzaphan, and Sifri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nachon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasa. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Pugil, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. 
This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Oh God, we approach you in weakness and need. Apart from the help of your Spirit, we cannot understand spiritual things. Lord, we ask, therefore, for the illuminating work of your Spirit, that we might understand what is written. I pray for an anointing from above as I preach your word tonight, that the Spirit would help me to think clearly, to speak clearly, help me with delivery, with content, that it would be glorifying to you, a blessing for your people. For any who are here among us tonight, whether in person or online, who do not yet know Christ, we pray that you will use what is preached tonight to save. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The genealogy that is contained in Exodus 6.14 through to Exodus 6.25 really serves two primary purposes. First, it introduces to us Moses and Aaron as Levites, which is important to their leadership credentials uh, later on as the Levites have uh, certain leadership responsibilities with respect to the worship of God among the people of Israel. So it's important to establish their credentials as Levites. Also, the genealogy introduces us to people who will become, uh, re to people who will be reintroduced later on in the Exodus narrative. And so there's a little bit of context setting for what is coming later. But these are, I think, largely the two primary purposes of this genealogy. So we won't spend any more time on it than that. Uh, certainly not a whole sermon, as I have done in the past on genealogies. Um, not even half a sermon, that's it. Uh, we're gonna move past that. Basically, what it's doing is setting up those two things. Then we see in verses 28, 29 and 30 of chapter 6, a setting of the context for what happens in the first seven verses of chapter 7. The numbers, the chapter numbers, and the verse numbers are not inspired, right? So when I say that I think that those last three verses of chapter 6 would have been better to include in chapter 7, I'm not questioning the Lord's wisdom, I'm <laughs> questioning the, the wisdom of whoever came along at a much later date. Because basically those fit better with what happens in 7, 1 to 7, than they do with the genealogy. The genealogy finishes and it says, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said such and such. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh. And then that section wraps up. Then a new narrative starts in verse 28 of chapter 6. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. So this is repeating a mandate that Moses got from the Lord. And then it repeats, it reminds us of Moses' objection. But Moses, chapter 6, verse 30, said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? That introduces for us the question which, with which Exodus 7, 1 to 7, is concerned. How will Pharaoh listen to Moses? 
Will Pharaoh listen to Moses or not? And what we see is that, or what we need to understand, pardon me, is that Moses is not wrong in objecting. Well, he's wrong for refusing what the Lord asked him to do, but he's not misguided in thinking that he is weak and feeble, that he is not persuasive. Why would Pharaoh, who is the most powerful ruler in the world at the time, listen to a guy like Moses? Now, chapter 7 and verse 7 tells us that Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now, if we go over to Psalm 90, which Moses actually wrote, in verse 10, Moses says, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So, by Moses' own account, he's pretty much due to die anytime. He's pretty much on his last legs. Here's an 80-year-old man. He's pretty much as good as dead. God says, go to the most powerful ruler in the world and tell him, let my people go. And so Moses is like, well, I'm too weak to do this. He's wrong for rejecting and not being obedient to what the Lord told him to do, but he's not misguided in that he's of little account or no account in terms of his persuasiveness and his influence in Pharaoh's court. So Pharaoh won't let them go on Moses' account. And Pharaoh won't let the people go on God's account. You remember earlier on when Moses first appeared before Pharaoh in chapter 5 and verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So Pharaoh won't let the people go on Moses' account, nor, by this juncture in the storyline, we see that nor will Pharaoh let the people go on the Lord's account. And so chapter 6, 28 to 30, re-raises this problem of will Pharaoh listen? How will Pharaoh listen? So 6, 28 to 30 is really setting us up for the first seven verses of Exodus chapter 7. And what God says is, in chapter 7 and verse 4, Pharaoh will not listen to you. First of all, the first thing that's going to happen is Pharaoh is not going to listen. He doesn't respect you, Moses, nor does he respect me, the Lord. He will not listen to you. In fact, God says one verse earlier in chapter 7 and verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. God will in fact see to it that Pharaoh does not listen to Moses. Pharaoh has no regard for the Lord. Pharaoh has no regard for Moses, and the Lord will see to it that it stays that way. The Lord will not intervene graciously. In fact, he will harden Pharaoh in his sins. Now this raises an ethical question for many. How is it fair that God will harden Pharaoh's heart? 
we turn to Romans chapter 9, where God says, The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Look, if God wants to have mercy on someone, it's his prerogative to do so. And no one quibbles about that. Likewise, if God wants to harden someone in their sin, it is his prerogative to do so. And yet many quibble with that. Many argue at that point in verse 19. It continues. I'm not skipping anything from what I just read in Romans 9. He has mercy on whomever he wills, verse 18, and he hardens whomever he wills. And immediately, verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, how can God find fault with Pharaoh when it was God's will to harden Pharaoh's heart? How can Pharaoh resist God's will? And therefore, how is it fair that God finds fault with Pharaoh? This is the objection that's raised when we talk about God hardening people's hearts. Well, how does Paul answer? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded, will, will what is molded say to his molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use? and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? The way the scripture answers this dilemma is it's like, well, Pharaoh is the clay, and God's the potter. God has every right as the potter to make whatever he wills with the clay. Paul doesn't actually get into a debate about agency and responsibility and what happened first and ethics and so on and so forth. Paul actually just takes it to its most extreme and says, if God created Pharaoh and prepared him to be a vessel of destruction and raised him up for this very purpose in order that God might show his power in Pharaoh and that God's name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Isn't that God's prerogative? He's the potter and Pharaoh's the clay. Listen, God does not exist for Pharaoh. Pharaoh exists for God. We need to understand ethically that this world literally revolves around God. We live in a radically God-centered world, and that is so offensive to so many people. But the scripture teaches it plainly. God does what is best for God, and because God is God, the best being, the first and chiefest of beings, as our catechism says, that's only fitting. What's God going to do? Prioritize lesser beings? And do everything for inferior beings? Of course, he's going to do all things for himself and for his glory. 
And by definition, that is right because he's God. There's not some external standard to which God must conform in order to be right. Whatever God does is right because he's God, so he does it. And whatever he does, it defines right. And we measure other rights and wrongs according to the way God has defined the world and set it up and according to what he does. So that's the way Paul deals with that particular ethical issue, which is utterly unsatisfying for people who have a problem with the potter deciding what to do with the clay. But Paul just rested there and says, but he's the potter, prepares the clay. But if we go back to Exodus chapter 7, the reason that God says in Exodus, um, or pardon me, the, the main concern in Exodus chapter 7 and verse 3 when it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, is not to raise a theological question. It's not to raise a difficult point for us to think about and debate about back and forth. When Moses heard that, he wouldn't have said, well, what are the ethics of that? How can you harden someone's heart? The question that would have arose in Moses' mind is how can you decree something that is difficult for your people? Why wouldn't you soften Pharaoh's heart instead of harden Pharaoh's heart? If indeed you are the potter and Pharaoh is the clay, mold him in such a way that your people are freed from their discomfort sooner rather than later. This would have been the concern that would have come up in Moses' mind. But God explains why he's going to do this. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to me. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, the people, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So God is saying, don't worry, you will come out. But I am doing it this way to show my power, to manifest my might, to manifest my superiority over the gods of Egypt. To manifest my superiority over the most powerful man in the world at the time, Pharaoh. I am going to harden his heart so that we get in a pushing and shoving match, so to speak. So that, so that, for the very purpose that we get into a contest of strength and I utterly exhaust and deplete the might of Pharaoh and his gods. And he's forced to relent. This is why God is not going to soften Pharaoh's heart in the first place, but harden Pharaoh's heart. Do you catch the implication of this? God does not exist for Pharaoh, but Pharaoh exists for God. Moreover, God does not exist for the people of Israel, but the people of Israel exist for God. God does not exist, therefore, for the unbeliever today, for the unbeliever today, 
exist for God. Nor does God exist for his church today, his people today, his covenant people today. But his covenant people exist for God. We live in a radically God-centered world. The way God deals with those who are not his special people is for his own sake, ultimately. The way God deals with those who are his special people is for his own sake, ultimately. God is not primarily concerned with Pharaoh's well-being, but his own glory. Nor is God primarily concerned with your well-being, but with his own glory. God will not hesitate to do something that makes life difficult for the unbeliever if it will serve the purpose of glorifying himself. Neither will God hesitate to do something that is difficult and challenging and makes life hard for you, believer, if it is that it will glorify himself. You see, the way that God has set things up is that everything that he has decreed has been decreed in order that in the end it will redound to the praise of his glory, which means that it will manifest his praiseworthy attributes. God has decreed the destruction of the wicked, the unrepentant, the reprobate, in order that he might manifest, make known his wrath, as Romans 9 tells us, against sin, his justice in meeting out the punishment that is deserved for those who rebel against him, not obeying his law and not loving. God has decreed the destruction of the wicked and the damnation of unrepentant sinners in order to make known the praiseworthy attribute of his justice, which we would not see displayed in its fullness if God were to save everyone. And so even from the destruction of the unbeliever, even from the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, even from his dealings with unbelievers today, God will have the glory in what he has decreed in the lives of unbelievers. And God will have his glory from the lives of believers. Everything that you will go through has been decreed by God and it is for his glory. If it's smooth sailing, it's to the praise of his kindness. It's to the praise of his goodness and his benevolence. If you are going through something difficult, it is to manifest, as we talked about last Sunday night, his ability to either sustain or rescue or resurrect you. But everything that happens to you is by his appointment for his glory. The unbeliever, God does not exist for the unbeliever, but the unbeliever exists for God. Neither does God exist for you, Christian, or for me, but we exist for God. All of our lives, all of creation, everything in this world in which we live exists. And the events unfold in such a way so as to manifest the manifold, varying, but beautiful and praiseworthy attributes of God all the way from his benevolence to his justice. This is the kind of world that we live in. 
this is an instance of the principle that I've enumerated. What happens here in Exodus 7 is an instance of this principle. God works it out in such a way that he hardens Pharaoh's heart so that the people of Israel don't immediately go out of Egypt. He does it not for Pharaoh's sake. Pharaoh is going to be damned. He does it not for the sake of the children of Israel. They have to suffer longer. He does it for his own sake. This is the way that God deals with this world. Everything he does is ultimately for his own sake. We would do well by way of application to get on board with that paradigm and do everything ourselves for God's own sake. Would it please God? Would it glorify God? Would it magnify God what I'm thinking about doing and saying today? What I'm prioritizing, will it magnify God? The way I'm planning to spend my energy, the way I'm planning to spend my money, will it exalt God? Will it manifest God's praiseworthy attributes? We ought to adapt a God-centered worldview. This also helps us as we go through suffering, rather than being like, oh, woe is me. Our attitude becomes God. I don't know necessarily what you're doing, but I ask, glorify yourself in this. And then we seek to suffer in such a way that glorifies God. Imagine the children of Israel, on the one hand, grumbling, oh, you mean we gotta stay in Egypt longer? Oh man, God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that we're, we're not going to get out quickly? Oh, come on, this is rude. Would that response to what God has done for his own glory maximize God's glory? Of course not. Rather, imagining Israelite who says, all in God's time, I trust his plan, I trust his purpose. Whatever God ordains is right. If I have to stay here longer, but it glorifies God, so be it. If he wants to leave me in Egypt for longer, if it will redound to his glory, so be it. Likewise, ourselves in suffering. Whatever you must do, Lord, whatever you think is best, do what you will in my life. Only glorify your name. When this is our attitude, when we embrace this attitude, it really maximizes God's glory and it puts God's glory on display for the people around us as we suffer like that. Now, because God thinks of his own glory first, because God thinks of his own glory foremost, because God thinks of his own glory ultimately. Does that mean that God thinks of his own glory exclusively? Does it mean that his people really have no hope for our own well-being, but simply, well, eternity will be rough for me, but God will be glorified. Is this then the conclusion that we are forced to draw? And the answer is no. Look in this passage. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Listen. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts 
my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and break out the people of Israel from among them. The eventual redemption and rescue of God's people from slavery in Egypt coalesces, goes together with, unites with the purpose of God glorifying himself. In fact, it puts on display his mercy, his grace, his benevolence, his kindness to kindness to an undeserving people, his covenant faithfulness. So many of God's attributes are displayed in his eventual rescue of the Israelites from Egypt. So they benefit and God is glorified. God is glorified, see, not only, not only in the hard providences, not only in the aspects of his character that we find difficult, like his justice and his wrath and so on and so forth. He's not only planning to put those things on display for eternity, that we might know that God is wrathful and just and leave it at that. See, God has planned and purpose to display his mercy, his grace, his kindness, and he's purposed to do so by lavishing those things upon an undeserving people. In Exodus 7 and uh, verse 7, or verse 4, pardon me, it says, Then I will bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. God purposed not only to put his justice on display in hardening Pharaoh's heart and damning him, but to put his mercy and grace and kindness on display by rescuing the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy, we read that it's not because Israel was such an impressive nation, not because they were more righteous than any nation or more numerous or anything like that, that God chose them. God says it was just simply of his own volition that he chose them. He just set his love upon them according to his sovereign pleasure in spite of their unworthiness. And so this isn't an instance of merit, like the people deserved to be rescued. This is an instance of mercy, grace, benevolence from God that is undeserved. We see that happening here in Exodus 7, and we see it most ultimately at the cross. God puts his mercy and grace on display. He acts for his own glory, ultimately at the cross. The cross is not ultimately about you and me. This is why I don't like this song. Well, I kind of like the melody and I find it kind of moving, but this is why I don't really think like the theology of this song above all. Right? You took the fall and thought of me above all. Was the cross mainly about me? Was the cross mainly even about us? The cross was most ultimately about God's glory. If we were to say it theologically right, you took the fall and thought of your glory above all. 
that would be more sound. God has decreed the destruction of the wicked, the damnation of the reprobate, in order to manifest the glory of his justice, his wrath, his righteous indignation against sin. Without that, we wouldn't properly see and perceive those things. Ephesians 1 tells us that the whole plan of redemption, the Father's predestiny, the Son's accomplishing, the Spirit's sealing, was for what purpose? Ephesians 1 repeats three times, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glorious grace, to the praise of His glory. This is most ultimately why the cross happened, to put on display the glory of God's grace and mercy and kindness. This is most ultimately why it happened, just as most ultimately why the rescue from Egypt happened was for God's glory. But just as the Israelites shared in the benefit of that rescue, God's glorifying himself in that rescue, so we share in the benefits of God's glorifying himself by the plan of salvation that he has set in motion in the person of his son. You see, when Jesus hung there on the cross, we could see, as it were, the mercy of God, the grace of God made manifest. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Tis mercy all, immense and free. We look there, we see mercy and grace poured out, and we ought to worship God for the mercy and the grace on display at the cross. It's for his glory. For we are beneficiaries. For when Jesus hung there, it wasn't only to display the mercy and the grace of God, but it was to put into action the mercy and the grace of God for those whom God has decreed to save. It was to atone for their sins. It was a spotless lamb dying in the place of sinners. As in the Old Testament, they would confess their sins with their heads on the hands, pardon me, with their hands on the heads of the animals. And then the animal would die in their place, bearing the punishment that they deserved for their sin. So the Son of God hung there on the cross, bearing the sins of his people. After living a perfect life, he wasn't dying for his own sin, but mine and Christian, yours. And so it wasn't just an abstract display of mercy and grace, but it was the release of mercy and grace to me and to you. So it was for God's glory, but we are also beneficiaries of it. 
we benefit from it. By placing faith in Christ Jesus, turning away from our own supposed righteousness that we have in ourselves, turning away from hope in any other Savior and putting it all on Jesus. Trusting that He who went to the cross has borne all my sin. I'm clothed now, not in my own unrighteousness, but in His righteousness that He earned for me by His sinless death. We benefit from that. And then who gets the glory in that transaction? The one who is saved or the Savior? It's the Savior. No one, no one writes songs. I was so dead, but then I chose. I am to be praised for. Whatever. We don't sing like that. Because there is no glory for us in that. We praise the Savior as we benefit from His salvation. And so we live in a God-centered world, which is good ultimately for God. Everything God does is by His appointment. Everything that happens in this world is by His appointment for His glory. Things which lead to damnation in order that he might manifest his justice and his wrath against sin. And things which lead to salvation in order that he might manifest his mercy and his grace. Everything that happens is by his appointment for his glory. But that doesn't mean that God is the only one who benefits at the end of the day. Everyone who gets on board with this God-centered paradigm Everyone who sees glory, the glory of God's mercy and grace in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and looks to Him in trust and in faith. Everyone who gets on board and puts their faith in His Son and says, yeah, I like this plan to manifest your mercy and grace. Such are also beneficiaries of God's eternal plan and purpose. And so let us, therefore, the application is obvious. Let us, therefore, get on board with this God-centered prayer. Let us embrace rather than buck against a God-centered worldview. Let us remember that God doesn't exist for Pharaoh or the children of Israel. But rather, both Pharaoh and the children of Israel exist for God. Let's just get on board with that and stop fighting against it. And let's appreciate that God's plan, what he's doing, is manifesting the full spectrum of his character, both in damnation and in salvation. Accept that. Get on board with that. And obviously choose to be among the saved. Put your faith in Christ Jesus. He will receive any and all who come. There is election. There is reprobation. But this doesn't negate the fact that there really is a choice before all of us. Will I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or will I not? Embrace a God-centered paradigm and then embrace the salvation that is held out to you.
in the person of Christ. Trust in Him for salvation. Look to Him. See Him in your mind's eye, as it were, hanging on the cross. Praise the mercy and grace of God, for that is the first and primary purpose of the cross. But also take shelter there. Take that cross as your own, so to speak. That's where my salvation was accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ.